When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is People Every Day. Coming up... Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Revisiting Princess Diana's 1995 sit-down as BBC apologizes for journalist Martin Bashir's deceitful actions. Plus, Demi Lovato reintroduces themselves and Rosario Dawson on her newest and oldest film and Life with Boyfriend Cory Booker. It's May 20th. Hi there, this is People Every Day. It's me, Janine Rubenstein, and it is Thursday, and definitely Throwback Thursday around here, because we've got some blasts from the past stories to get into. Later in the show, I catch up with the wonderful Rosario Dawson, who is very au courant, I should say, and has a new movie with David Oyelowo called The Waterman, and we get into that, and also her happy life now, living in New Jersey, with her boyfriend, Jersey Senator Cory Booker. But we take it back to her very first role in Kids about 25 years ago. Who can forget that? So stay tuned for that combo. But now Top Stories and People.com Managing Editor Charlotte Triggs is on with me to dig into one that dates back to the 90s as well, the controversy surrounding former BBC journalist Martin Bashir and his big 1995 sit-down interview with Princess Diana. Hi, Charlotte. Hey, Janine. How's it going? Good, good. So, so where were you when that whole interview aired. I feel like that's one of those those moments that people remember. Did you sit down and watch Diana just let it all hang out? Well, I'm not sure that it's okay for me to share this, but I was probably 12 years old, so I doubt my parents let me watch it. Um. <laughs> ditto, ditto. So I didn't watch it, you know, live, but I also, you know, know him from his big Michael Jackson sit-down interview that I remember. That's my Martin Bashir moment. But so let's talk about why this interview is coming back up now and the quote-unquote deceit that was involved. Yeah. So there's been a big investigation into the practices that Martin Bashir used in order to get her to sit down with him. Bashir is accused of falsifying bank statements, which he then showed to Charles Spencer. And he relayed that information to Diana, showing that um, there were people in her inner circle who might have been being paid to leak information about her. Now, obviously, she was already highly mistrustful of you know, of the firm because she didn't feel like they were protecting her. And so highly vulnerable to that sort of thing. Um, and we all, we know from her own statements that she, you know, that she had mental health issues. She was very like probably anxiety ridden that she suffered from an eating disorder and that all of this led her to be somebody who was highly suggestible. And then of course the most bombshell detail is that she was shown a receipt that allegedly indicated that Charles had paid for their nanny to have an abortion. She sat down with him and she really let loose. She said that her, that there had been three people in their marriage. She talked about her eating disorder. She talked about how unhappy her marriage had been, the pressure that she felt like it was, she sure was lucky that she'd had a boy because otherwise it might not have been such a good situation for her stuff that anybody might have, um, you know, deduced from like the tabloid headlines at the time, but she really just let it all hang out. And this interview had huge consequences on 
their marriage. Basically, after that, the queen basically gave them her blessing to go ahead and get divorced because they felt like she had become a liability to the the firm, as it were. And um, from that point on, it's like, you know, her losing her, her princess title, losing her, you know, the protections that she had being part of the family her extended family believes that that ultimately did lead to her demise, that not having those sorts of protections was what left her so vulnerable that she, you know, if you, you recall, obviously the tragic death, she was basically run off the road being chased by paparazzi. Um, so, so, so who is responsible for this investigation and, and in what ways um, was he found to go against BBC's guidelines? I'm trying to think of like what the guidelines were back in 1995. Was it a little more fast and loose back then? Uh, You know, actually, one would assume that things were more buttoned up, probably. And it's like, in fact, the BBC did make a statement that the only um, circumstances they would have considered it to be okay to falsify documents like that would be if you were investigating something that had like criminal dealings. You know, this is a matter of great public interest. People consumed it. People wanted to know it. Did we have the right to know it? I don't know. Mm. And so and so Bashir isn't the only person, you know, who could face consequences because of this. Right. Because allegedly BBC executives tried to cover this up. They knew that he had kind of gone around the rules um, on this one. So, so take us into a little more of like what's to come, what could come. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's not entirely clear what could come. I mean, the thing is, this report has been leaked. We've seen that um, they officially confirmed that they believe that Bashir used deceitful methods. But um, we don't know, you know, precisely which executives it was who might have covered up what to what degree they were involved, just that there allegedly are BBC executives who who may have been involved in in you know, obfuscating the the details of all of this in order to keep it from becoming a, an inquiry like this. So, Charlotte, tell me, what are they doing about all this? What is the BBC saying and and doing? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, they are indicating that they fell far short of what their audience had a right to expect. They, they're, a, you know, a news outlet that holds themselves to impeccable journalistic standards. And they said that while they can't turn back the clock after a quarter of a century, they can make a full and unconditional apology. And of course, Bashir also recently resigned from his position as a religion editor there. So to the degree that it's possible to even do anything to rectify the situation, they do want to do that. Got it. And he is ailing himself, right? We're hearing that he has health issues and... Yeah, he's been in and out of the hospital for the last several months as this whole thing has been unfurling and as the investigation has been going on. He hasn't been able to participate um, in any meaningful way, um, publicly discussing anything or speaking for himself because he's been seriously ill. So, um, and he continues to to be in and out of the hospital. So it's a situation where it's all very regrettable. It is you know, stuff that happened so long ago that like, I think, you know, to the point that they made, there's not much that they can do to fix it now, but they can apologize. Wow. And and so I, I want to talk about someone who has been really outspoken recently on their own terms, uh, Demi Lovato. Uh, so, so we got the news yesterday that Demi Lovato identifies as non-binary and wants to go by the pronouns they and them. So what else? Well, one, let's listen to uh, their own words about this. And then um, we'll just dig in a little bit to um, what else they had to say. I feel that this best represents the fluidity I feel in my gender expression and allows me to feel most authentic and true to the person I both know I am and still am discovering. 
In this first episode, I'm excited to share with you what this means to me and what it may look like for other people. So that's Demi making the statement on their new podcast for D. So what else did Demi have to say about uh, this news? It was everywhere yesterday. One of the things that Demi pointed out, they said, quote, I'm still learning and coming into myself and I don't claim to be an expert or a spokesperson. Sharing this with you now opens another level of vulnerability for me. So this is obviously something that's still a work in progress. You know, um, mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of people out there might be first learning a lot about this because of Demi, because of how high profile they are. But Demi is open about the fact that you know, this is something that they're still learning themselves. That's an important note that this isn't just the final end all be all. It's a, a journey that they're on. So Charlotte, thank you for all of this from from the UK to, to music. We, we're getting into it. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Next up, Rosario Dawson dishes on becoming a Jersey girl during the pandemic and the incredible journey that got her there. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Rosario Dawson is back on the big screen in the highly anticipated new film, The Waterman, in which she plays Mary, the ailing wife of Amos, played by David Oyelowo, who makes his directorial debut in this film. And she plays mom to their son, Gunner, played by Lonnie Chavis, who's got a rich imagination and uses it to try and cope with his mom's illness. Watching Dawson in this film, it's hard to believe that it has been 25 whole years since the first time we got to see her in action, playing Ruby in the cult classic Kids that gave a heartbreaking depiction of New York City teens growing up in the 90s amid the AIDS epidemic. Dawson joins the show today to talk about her powerful roles then and now and the life and times in between. Hi, Rosario. Hi, how are you? So great to have you on and and get to learn about your life and, and great work. So first, let's talk about The Waterman. It's an indie film David Oyelowo is directing for the first time and starring in it. You play Mary, his wife, who's very sick. I imagine he wanted someone who could just knock it out of the park. So he just rang you up like, I've got a great role for you. You've got to do this. Is that how it happened? Well, I had seen him at an award show and like just super fangirled on him and said, you know, how much I would love to work with him one day. And, you know, this character is, has brief time on screen actually, but she is 
the heart and glue of this family. And, you know, what's at stake with her dying is potentially the entire family dying, you know, if they don't, you know, make certain kind of amends and have some important heart to hearts. And, uh, and I just thought it was so wonderful. You know, I think he'd seen some of the work I'd done and in films like seven pounds, you know, where I really took a lot of pains as in this film to show the dignity behind illness. And I just thought it was such an honor and a gift and privilege to, to, to be, you know, gifted a role like this, you know, it's, um, I only shot, I was only there two weeks. And the major crux of this film is, is, you know, this boy going on this huge adventure to try to save his mother and making sure to, to, to bring her to life in a way that you could get why that is so critical. We slipped into a mode that I think elicited some moments that a lot of people can relate to. Right, for sure. I, I love the the tickling moment uh, with it just at the very beginning. I do that with my son where I'm like, what? Why are you laughing? What, what are you laughing? I'm just tickling. <laughs> I got that from my uncle. It was a constant thing from my uncle. Oh. You know, the song that I sing too, David's wife wrote for one of their kids, you know, oh, so there wow. were just like details and moments like that that were built in. Like, you know, so I was doing the like, why are you laughing thing? Because that's what my uncle used to do. Oh, so nice. <laughs> you know, it just it felt like there was a lot of play on set, you know, which is challenging to do, especially when you're on kid hours, because mm-hmm. you, you only have them on set for a certain amount of hours. And he still allowed there to just be this room to breathe and play and explore and, you know, um, and try on certain things so that, you know, we could really find out what this dynamic of this family was. Mm. Um, and. And it, and it just was incredible to have someone like him at the helm who had such a clear vision for this, but also had such an, an important background in acting to get just how important it was to create, um, to create the space for us to, 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 to fill in this family's history in such a short period of time. Yeah, yeah, you definitely feel you feel that connectivity um, when you watch it. Uh, what was it like to get into this character for you? And I'm asking specifically because you've been you've been open about um, your dad's struggles uh, with, with pancreatic cancer, and and it just seems like did that inf- influence you in any way, whether taking it or not taking it, or, or feeling like it was hitting close to home. You know, um, for me, that was actually a lot of the reason why I wanted to do it. You know, I think um, I was in the midst of seeing how myself I would do, I would and have, I've tried to do anything and everything possible to, to, you know, make this very challenging experience with my dad be as manageable as possible um, and as loving and as healthy and, and full of life as possible. And, you know, and watching his struggle um, and being an older kid um, dealing with an ailing parent just made me that much more connected to Gunner and to this family. Well, let's talk a little bit about last year. Well, it, it filmed before the pandemic, but how has your last year been going? I know we have something in common. So I, uh, my husband and I, we took a cross-country RV trip to California from New Jersey. We're in Jersey. Same. A trip to California. <laughs> because, But you did the opposite. So you took, yeah. was it an RV? Did, you took a trip from California to New Jersey. Yes. So, you know, we were just past my dad's chemo and surgery and he'd been recuperating and then had to be kept in the house because of fear yeah. for you know, his comorbidity kind of stuff going on. And, you know, we're East Coasters, you know, I've been living in LA for 15 years, but my Mm -hmm. boyfriend is, you know, 
New Jersey, DC. My family's in New York. And so it really pushed us to make our move. And, you know, my dad didn't want to fly out of fear during that time. So we decided to drive. Of course, the only thing we could get was this RV bus that was 29 feet long, 13 feet tall. The wind (laughs) would hit it. It would rock like a boat. And he couldn't drive while we were doing it. He was just too weak to to do the driving. So I did all the driving on this bus. I remember like a, a truck going by one time. We got caught in this lightning storm for 100 miles. We just could not avoid it. And like the wind from just passing by this truck pushed us over an entire lane. Luckily there was no one else there. But I remember just like moments like that. I was like, I had Popeye arms by the time we were got back home. It was just like, 10 and 2. Um, I, I just, I remember just being like, you know, it wasn't necessarily safer. Um, but by the end of it, I mean, it was an amazing adventure. I'm so glad I got to do that with my dad, just two of us to get out of the house in that way, even though we weren't interested anybody. We were sleeping on our bus. Like, you know, it was just, it felt really beautiful and it felt good to, to start a new chapter of my life in the driver's seat, I have to say. And, and a new chapter as a, as a Jersey girl and coming from New York, this is a, you know, we got malls over here, but this is a thing. very upset. Like, cause sometimes I have like Jersey jokes or whatever. And he's just, (laughs) all he has is his Jersey factoids. And I'm like, you know, like, of course, New York, New Yorkers appreciate New Jersey because you have a great view of New York from Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Look at that city line, you know. Um, but it's it's finally now that it's been spring because, I, you know, I became I moved in in September. Mm-hmm. Still haven't been to Jersey Shore. Haven't you haven't been, been to like, the mall? Not anywhere because it's a pandemic. Okay. Um, <laughs> But it's, you know, now the cherry blossoms are out and it's the parks here are beautiful. And he's like, and see, see, I, I told you. This is my mom says this is why New Yorkers don't like New Jersey because there's so much space. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, no, this apartment closet. Now that's that's real estate. What that's worth it. Like land and grass. <laughs> what is that? Who lives like that? You've been converted. You've been converted. I like that. Apparently, yeah. And, then, and just what has it been like to have that support in just such a crazy time? You have so much going on in your personal life. It's been a pandemic. And then we've also had the racial injustice pandemic that is still ongoing. So to have him and to have this just new life that, that you guys have formed, how has it been to have that in the craziest time in history? I have to say, I mean, it's to have a, a partner in justice, as I like to say, um, is just so beautiful. It's been really powerful, you know, to be with a partner who, you know, he's right now in DC working on a policing bill and, you know, where he's every, he just joined the ag, you know, committee and he's pushing on marijuana justice and just so many different things. So it's not just busy work. It's, it's work that is really in line with our values. And it feels the same with myself and with the acting work that I've been able to do and the storytelling that we get to do that is not necessarily considered essential work, but try to get through a quarantine or pandemic without art. Please (laughs) can't do it. And have those stories be something that like revitalizes our sense of humanity um, and brings us together, um, even when we have to be apart. 
Good, good. Okay, well, I have to go back because they're they're giving me a time limit, but I want to get into kids a little bit. 25 years. I looked at that stat and I was like, 25 years? What? One, you look the exact same. No, I know. <laughs> like, to me, you do. And then two, when you when someone says that to you, what is that? I mean, I guess last year was the was the milestone, but like, what did that feel like to think? Has it been? Like, does it feel that way? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of life has happened since I was, yeah. 15, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing. Like, I, I think I just feel so grateful. I'm knocking on wood, you know, like there are a lot of people I know during that time who are not with us anymore. Yeah. We didn't make it out alive. And as much as we romanticize the eighties and nineties in New York and how cool it was, you know, it was really challenging and really tough. And hard. I'm so that that film was so unabashed and raw about showing some of those aspects. And it really is a time capsule. I mean, no one, like this, the whole premise of the movie doesn't work anymore because everyone's got a cell phone and can geolocate each other, you know, like yeah. spending all day trying to find like, oh, I called someone, I rang on their buzzer. They said to go yeah. over here. Like that yeah. just doesn't even happen anymore. You know, <laughs> you use a payphone at one point in the, in the film, you know, yes. like, it's, it's unbelievable to see the park in Tompkins Square Park before yeah. everything changed, you know, so it's, you know, police riots and, and gentrification, you know, like, and I think that the, 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 the themes of the, of the story, similarly in the way that this does, uh, the Waterman does, is that it, it's, you know, it's focus and protagonist being on kids and young people and, and recognizing their autonomy and their independence and their intelligence um, and, and their need for supervision and support and boundaries and, you know, healthy communication, um, is, is just so vital. And I, I don't, we, I don't think we get to explore that often. So often a lot of the kids stuff is very commercial and is very centered on kids as consumers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's about hair and makeup and this and that yep. and selling things and being quippy and like, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it doesn't really ground young people as the dynamic human beings that they are all the time. And I think kids does that in a way that still resonates today. Um, you know, what kids are up to when their parents aren't watching and, and, and the kinds of choices that they're making that could affect them for the rest of their lives, short or long lived. And, and in this one as well, like how important it is to have a young person like in, in the waterman recognize like how passionate he's putting his whole, he's putting his life on the line for his mother, you know, like he, his faith and, you know, this is unconditional love on a whole other way. And, Imagine that you're not seeing the power and beauty of this young boy and his friend and like what they're willing to do, the sacrifices. This is about sacrificial love. I think is 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 to waste precious moments that we can't count on having and take for granted. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. One, thank you for um, just allowing me to talk to someone from the LES. My mother-in-law is from the Lower East Side or the LOA, as she calls it. And then also for being able to talk to a, a Jedi, because my son is going to flip his lid when I tell him that I spoke to a Mandalorian Jedi. So. Oh, right on. Very cool. Well, tell I him. appreciate I hope you. I forces with him, you know, Strong that one, I'm sure. For sure. Have a great one. Thank you for your time. 
That was Rosario Dawson. For more on her and her new film, The Waterman, in theaters and streaming now, head over to people.com. And now, something to make you smile. We are still in the season where college hopefuls anxiously await their acceptance letters. And while one student pranked her parents into being filmed for what they thought was a class assignment, little did they know they were about to get their daughter Gurdjieff's big news. Listen. Oh my God! This is incredible! Whoa! Oh my God! What is this? Wait, what is this school? San Antonio already? That was their now viral reaction to her first acceptance letter to optometry school at the University of the Incarnate Word, Rosenberg School of Optometry. Uh, The video posted on Twitter now has amassed seven and a half million views. Hats off to her. I can see that her future looks bright. Yes, it's a very bad optometry joke. Whatever. Talk to you guys tomorrow. Tomorrow. 